Sirius XM 106. It's volume feedback. Nick Carter, Lori Majewski, and back in the day, Keith famously said, If I do the singing, what's he going to do? Everybody knew what the he he referred to was. Our returning champion, Mark Myers of the Wall Street Journal, is going to break it down because in 19, 1988, yeah, he did do the singing. <laughs> yeah, that was tough. I mean, he had to really learn that. Um, he had no clue how to be a frontman. Um, Keith uh, really, for 25 years, had basically stepped forward on the chorus and said what he had to sing, what he had to sing, and stepped back. And Mick really, you know, obviously is uh, singing throughout the song, but he had to really figure figure that stuff out. Uh, Keith, you know, so the big question is, well, why is Keith Richards recording? It's almost like a Supreme Court justice going out in the street and work, you know, working a hot dog stand or something, right? <laughs> it's like you don't have to do that. Why are you doing a solo? Album? You're you're with the Rolling Stones. You're you're with the band that never ends and where all of the four me- all four members are there for life. But it was time, and there's a lot of drama as to how that comes to be and why that comes to be, and it it happens in the mid '80s. I mean, you know, 25 plus years in, it's time. Yeah, well, you know, it's also there was a little bit of friction, with a little bit of friction, a little bit of a rift. Um, Again, we're talking about Talk is Cheap, the album, Keith's first solo album. And the album was released in 88, as you mentioned. Um, and it was a tribute to early rock and roll. Keith just, you know, he's rock and roll blues all the time, 24-7. Um, on one track, though, you know, to show you how much he loved rock and roll, on one track on that album, I could have stood you up. He's got Johnny Johnson, Chuck Berry's pianist, playing from all the way back in 1955. I mean, Keith, wow. you know, is a historian. People just sort of view him as drinking and smoking and stuff. But that guy knows his history. He knows his blues history. He knows his rock history. And he, and he loves it. I mean, he lives it and he loves it. The big single off the album, which is what we're going to talk about today, which was the subject of my Anatomy of a Song column in the journal, is Take It So Hard, which has an unusual title, but it doesn't once you hear the story behind it. This song went to number three on Billboard's mainstream rock songs chart, which sounds like a strange chart, except when you think about the mid-80s, everything was fractured and segmented because of MTV, because of radio. Um, if something was played a lot on the radio, it would usually wind up on this particular chart. I was telling was Lori earlier, I had the 45, and I played it so much, just that, especially that intro riff. Oh, man. It was so cue-burned, like you could barely even hear the music yeah. until like a good 10 seconds in. I know. So I just played it over and over and over again. And it almost doesn't matter what he's singing, right? It's just like, he just, <laughs> loving that guitar so much that telecaster um interestingly keith told me um when i interviewed him uh, that he began writing this is what was really fascinating he told me when i interviewed him that he began this song in 1984 and i'll tell you why that's interesting in a second but <clears throat> as with all things keith this particular song began with the riff i mean it always begins with the riff but there was a problem um a year later in 85 um problems existed between um, Keith and Mick over the future of the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones was really up in the air during these years. Um, But let's talk a little bit about the background of of the Stones um, in the 80s, because that's fundamental to understanding the background story to the song. Excuse me. In in 84, the Rolling Stones were at a big turning point. Um, The the band's in a creative rut, really. Uh, They sounded dated given what was going on at the time. Uh, they were playing rock and roll when MTV and synths and drum beats, electric drum beats were, were the rage. 
Um, and here they, suddenly their music, suddenly rock and roll sounded like the typewriter compared to the computer. You know, it just sounded, yeah. wow, this sounds creaky. I mean, you know, it's like rock and roll. I mean, that's, we're, we're into a whole new bag now. Everything's visual. Everything's dressed up. Everything's London. Everything is, you know, it's a whole different scene. You're speaking scene. my language. I know. Absolutely. I'm looking right at you. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, it was all synthetic, baby. <laughs> yeah. 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 It was, everything sounded, you know, weird and everything looked kind of cool and it was just a different time. Um, but Mick tried, you know, Mick tried to ride this wave. And that's the. This is where the fracture starts. He he gets what's going on. He's trying to sort of fit into it, and he just says to the band, "Look, I'm going to record a solo album." And that solo album is "She's the Boss" in 1984. Let's to give the listener a taste. Let's hear just another night. And he was so uh, emphatic about being cool. Remember, he had Ray Don Chong in the video. Yeah. <laughs> oh us, yeah. Give us your coat. <laughs> and the only the only person in the whole world that liked this was Jan Wenner, who forced Rolling Stone to give that to give it. Yeah. Like you know what? It's amazing what people will do for yeah, access. It's so for funny. Interviews. I have to say, whether he liked it or not. Actually, I have is to suspect. say. I have to say. I don't. I I remember this. I don't think it was the disaster that people said it was. Primitive Cool, I thought was a disaster. Yeah. But this, at least, you know, I I. I, I saw where he was going. Let's well, drop it. Well, let's just drop in just another night so people, you know. Oh, right. He was trying to. Yeah. You got it? So listen to those drums. And it's plastic. Everything's plastic. So this could be anything, right? This could be any any I mean, singer this, could come in here. This could have been the Don Johnson. Could single. have been anybody. Anybody well, could have jumped now in. Now you singing. go too far. No, seriously. <laughs> now you, you know, go too and far. I just I just want to point out that it, it was at this point that Mick Jagger tries to get into the hottest new wave club in London, and they stop him at the door. There you go. They're like, "We'll let Bowie in," which is true, but nah, it, not yeah. you. Mick, you know, it's a weird time because Mick Jagger instantly becomes Benny Goodman or something. Yes. It's like he's, it's like, it's like the big bands are over and there's like something new. You know, it's like boom, you're Glenn Miller. Um, but Mick's move may have soured Keith a little bit because, um, you know, on on. Uh, and because he, in, in some respects, Keith wasn't that happy about all that. And that riff he was playing, he was developing for Take It So Hard that we played at the intro. He kind of puts that in his pocket. And in 1985, the Stones record Dirty Work, and that song is, isn't developed, and it's not on there. He had it, but it's never, never brought forward for development. And when Dirty Work comes out, it's largely panned by critics as uninspired. I mean, it's just, l let's hear, do um, you have one hit to the body? This is from Dirty Work, The Rolling Stones, in 85. Now it's it's okay. Right? I actually I actually like that. They lost me at Love Is Strong. That's what I was saying. Yeah, go. I mean it's okay, but it does still sound. 80s. I don't know how else yeah. to put it. Um, you know, it sounds like they're trying to sneak in the window into the 80s. You know, they're they're trying to get in but there. It but it still sounds like the Stones to me, yeah. at least. Like you hear yeah. it, it's Stonesy, whereas like the that mix solo was definitely. But they still sound like they're sneaking into a new era. They're trying to adapt to well, what's going on. Well, wouldn't be the first on. time. Remember, they had their disco single. Yeah. You know. Well, but Miss You was great. You know, there's a there's a, there's a but even Miss You still had sort of like a little bit of a dirt. 
to it. This yeah, is exactly. very, this Jeff is very sheeny. That's very, the point. It's but a, they, it's when airbrush. they were trying, they were hoping it Definitely. would be like the way the way they fit in with Miss You. It's air, it's airbrushed. That's I think that's the point. I think that's that's well put. Um, then Mick says he's not going to tour for the album. You know, he tells the band, you know, I'm not I'm not going to tour. I'm not, you know, I don't want to tour for this album. And the band is left idle. Um, and instead. Mick goes into the studio and records Primitive Cool, his second solo album. Um, and it comes out in 87, I think, 86 or 87. And it receives e- an even cooler reception than She's the Boss. Let's hear Let's Work. Not enough echo, not enough octaplex drums. He just can't make it solo. Like every, I mean... Even when he did, was it Got Us in the Doorway? He tried to do the Santana thing, bringing all the young guns like Wyclef, but even like Lenny Kravitz couldn't give him anything. That's what's interesting, and I'll get to that later. But which that is beginning that, sounded like, never going to give you up, totally. never going to let you totally. it could have been. He tried to rickroll. It could have been anything but Mick Jagger rock god. Absolutely. 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 What's the, what's, the, what's the trio of songwriters from London that wrote all these kinds Stock of Stockache and Waterman. Bingo. Yeah. We covered them a couple of, a bunch of weeks ago. Um, that's what that sounds like. That's what that sounds like. Um, so the final straw for, for Keith yeah. is Mick saying, I'm going to tour for Primitive Cool. That's, and- that's, <laughs> no, that, that's the FU right there. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's where Keith is just oh saying. And he's uh, obviously Mick's traveling with the album's band, not the Stones. I mean, the Stones are basically on hiatus. Um, and this was interesting, you know, as I was talking to Keith about it, he got kind of quiet and he, and I said, well, how did you feel about that? I mean, you know, what, what did you feel like emotionally? I mean, even briefly, what did you say? what did you think to yourself? And he said, you know, then he felt, I, you know, do a Keith imitation, but he said, I felt lost for a bit. I felt lost for a bit. Um, and it makes sense. You know, think about it. It's like, you've got this job and you're working 25 years and you're in the top of the world. And then all of a sudden it feels like, Mick's going someplace else. And the interesting thing about the Stones is Mick and Keith, if they're not together, they're much less, you know? You know, Mick plus Keith equals something amazing. And if Mick isn't singing with Keith's riffs behind him, those big Cadillac riffs, you know, those chrome riffs from Keith, if he doesn't have that, something's missing. And if Keith is sort of playing and Mick's not bopping around there, you know, in the vocal there's a little bit less too you know it's just it's just a little more it's just a little more um uh, it's just less it's a little more anemic um and as as you know Keith sort of said you know I was in a band for 25 years and suddenly you know things aren't as important you know it would make I think it would make anybody question their chops and ability if suddenly what you had done for 25 years didn't have value either in the in the culture at large in the music scene at large and then also well to yeah. your partner to, exactly it was a marriage there you go that's beautifully put that's really that's really what it is I think you did it you nailed it um, in 86 with the Stones Idol Keith decides well let me take a couple extra jobs you know let me let me see what else is going on and he records with Ronnie Wood on Aretha Franklin's cover of Jumpin' Jack Flash now Ken this is the spy action comedy of the same name that was directed by Penny Marshall's first film <clears throat> and stars Whoopi Goldberg yeah. and Keith gets his mojo back so unfortunate Let, let's, though <laughs> well let's let's have a taste of Aretha Franklin's Jumpin' Jack Flash with Keith and Ronnie It still has it, you know? Boom. It's big. 
It's big, it's rocky. You know, and Aretha's voice, when it comes in, it's, it just adds a soul element. Um, so he, when he's recording the song is where he meets Steve Jordan, his co-writer, on um, Take It So Hard and on Talk Is Cheap, and also, um, you know, who becomes an integral member of the band that Keith forms, ultimately, for this album and for other solo ventures, which is the expensive uh, Winos. Um, later in 86... Keith's starting to really feel his oats. I mean, he's saying, I can do things on my own. I don't need, I don't need Nick. I can do some stuff, you know? So he co-produces a concert documentary celebrating Chuck Berry's 60th birthday to film his Hail, Hail Rock and Roll. And the backup band includes Steve Jordan and Bobby Keys, who becomes, who would become uh, the saxophonist in the expensive winos. Let's listen to too much, bring this up to uh, 50 seconds in and let's hear, here's too much monkey business from the film with Chuck Berry and uh, on lead vocal, obviously in guitar with Keith behind him on guitar with a solo. Too much monkey business. Too much monkey business. Too much monkey business for me to be I mean, that's flavor. That's flavor. That's great. So this is a great documentary. I mean, you can see it on YouTube, parts of it, and you can you know, buy it, I think, as a DVD. Chuck or Berry Blu-ray. yelling at Keith is my favorite. <laughs> I live for that. I, I've been living for 60 years with it. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, this is what Keith told me. He said, after Hail Hail, um, he said, Steve and I spent more time together knocking around song ideas, and soon bassist and drummer Charlie Drayton began hanging out, and somehow guitarist Waddy Wachtel turned up, and the next thing I know, keyboard player Ivan Neville, Aaron Neville's son, uh, was there, and that's the start of the winos. You know, they just all start hanging out together, and uh, they start coming together. Um the history of the song, you know, now that you know the history of why this album and this song came to be because of the tensions and the rift that existed, um, it's interesting to know how this song develops because there's a lot of drama that's involved with it. Um, well, let's take a break and we'll dive headfirst into that. But first, let us reward you. Caller number five, you win uh, the Keith Richards Talk is Cheap 30th anniversary box set, which includes Deep Breath. <gasps> Remastered 180-gram LP album plus 180-gram of bonus material featuring six never-before-released tracks, seven-inch of uh, Take It So Hard, the song we're talking about, the B-side, It Could Have Stood You Up, Uh, seven-inch single of Make No Mistake, It Means A Lot, remastered CD album, CD containing bonus material featuring six never-before-released tracks featuring Mick Taylor, the boots of cons, baby, and Johnny Johnson, an extensive 80-page hardcover book with Anthony DeCurtis written essay featuring a new interview with Kafe including uh, extensive rare and unseen photos from personal archives, a tour laminate, two lyric sheets, reproduction of the Talk is Cheap playback invite, Talk is Cheap tour guitar pick, two posters, courtesy of BMG, no purchase necessary. Got to have the quick fingers, though. 844-686-5863. Alex awaits you if you're calling number five. We'll be right back on Feedback. Feedback returns in just a moment. Behind your favorite songs, not just big hits, but iconic culture-changing pieces of art. This is Anatomy of a Song on Feedback. Yeah. Steve Jordan, we see you. 
Sirius XM 106, it's volume feedback. Nick and Lori and Mark Myers, Wall Street Journal music and arts contributor, uh, breaking down yet another anatomy of a song. That one, which in the middle or like the tail end of the 80s, really did come through like a... Like yeah. a buzzsaw through butter. Yeah. Take nah. it so hard. Keith yeah. Richards. Yeah. I have never heard that song until yesterday. Really? I just wanted to say that. Yeah. <laughs> it was one of these things that, you know, I know, Nick, you said, oh, you had the 45, you spun it. I don't know. I guess I- It wasn't really a Lori thing at that time. No, it definitely wasn't. And I listened to the radio night and day, and I knew all the, the Mick Jagger solo stuff, we, we I, the Mick Jagger and Bowie stuff, but nah, that, that escaped me. Huh. Well, so I'm learning a lot today. Virgin yeah, this, Records. Yeah, Keith on there, he, he sounds like a, an electric razor that breaks free from the house and starts tearing down the street. And it just has this electric... Well, he was mad. Yeah. But that electric razor sound that he gets on there, which was kind of interesting how he pulled that off. 87, by 87. Now, we talked about you know Keith breaking out with Jumpin' Jack Flash and Aretha, and then also uh, co-producing Hell, Hell, Rock and Roll, that concert documentary. By 87, Keith and Steve, Keith's feeling it now. He's got the mojo going, and Steve, Keith and Steve realized that they work kind of together. They work well together. Um, so they go down to Studio 900 in Manhattan, which is at 900 Broadway in the Flatiron District, and they start jamming in the studio. Keith sets up right across from Steve, and they're just looking at each other and cracking up, and one thing gets to one thing leads to another, and it's just the two of them. And the first song they work on is Keith's riff for this song. I mean, it's the first thing Keith pulls out of his pocket is the riff to take it so hard. Uh, when I asked Keith which came first, the music or the lyric, right, um, for the song, he basically said um, it's it's the riff, that he didn't really have much more than you take it so hard. Uh, you take it so hard. And when I asked him, you know, is, is that, you know, is that normal for, for songs like this? Um, he said, that's usually how it is with me. It's the riff, and then I, he says, this is a great line. He says, it's the riff, and then I try to find the English that floats with the music. Um, I only had the, he said, I only had the lyric phrase, you shouldn't take it so hard. That's, that's what he had. Um, but let's, you know, the listener knows this, but we have to do this. Let's go through some great Keith riff intros so we understand why the riff is so important. Because that, when you hear these opening riffs, you understand why Mick Jagger's solo albums and Mick Jagger's solo work just doesn't have, <clears throat> it's got the pop, but it doesn't have the energy, um, you know, that, that Keith brings to it. Let's, let's start going through a bunch of them. Here's Keith on 12-string acoustic with a Phil Spector feel for Tell Me from America's newest hitmakers in 64. Just how he runs the fingers on that. Ah. All right, let's go to uh, It's All Over Now from 12 by 5 and 64. Man, that is a big country western guitar sound. It's like a Gibson. We've talked about tone on the show. You always know from the first strum, it's Keith. I know. Let's go to uh, let's go to satisfaction from out of our heads in '65. I mean, what a buzzsaw! Let's do uh, Miss Amanda Jones from Between the Buttons in '67 as we drive listeners crazy. Why are you taking it off? Isn't that fuzz? Man, huh? Between the buttons. That's Miss Amanda Jones. Um, give me Citadel from Satanic Majesties in 67. I mean, you, that, without that riff, you know, it, that's the Stones. 
Speaking of which, let's do uh, let's do Jumpin' Jack Flash from '68. My favorite man. Sheesh. Even though it's electric, you can almost feel him strum. Yeah. Oh yeah. And just the way he just—I don't know if that's a telly or a strat—just the way he's like just strangling the neck. Definitely. So good. Definitely. Uh, let's do my favorite intro, uh, Keith intro, which is uh, Street Fighting Man from uh, Beggar's Banquet in 68. That's an acoustic guitar, by the way, not electric. Wow. I would have never guessed that. Yeah. Yeah, can you imagine how hard he's like slamming that to make it yeah. sound that way? And feeding it through a cassette, which then, I mean, I did an anatomy with him on that song, too. It's amazing how he pulls that off. And finally, let's, uh, let's which is another, here's another great one. Let's do uh, Brown Sugar from Sticky Fingers in 71. So this is the main ingredient. You're talking about the Rolling Stones. This is the sound. Keith is the sound. And nobody duplicates the sound. You, you, just, there's just nobody who does. Um, so Keith and Steve are in Studio 900, and they're playing that riff. They're taking it so hard. Take it so hard. And they're batting ideas back and forth. And once the music's down, once they have the music, they had this interesting vocal technique that they use to come up with the lyrics for the song. And it's, it's this technique where you sing along only using vowels. In other words, Keith is just singing A. He's just singing along like A, E, I, O, U. And what happens is, as Steve, Steve Jordan was telling me, the more you sing those as you're playing, you play it over and over again, you sing those, words start to come. You start to pull words out of the sky. You start to pull words out of the air um, that go with that. And you start to put things together. The, it, it's sort of a, a way in which you get inspired to sing Sing, almost fake sing, but at the same time start to develop language with those particular vowels that pulls it together. So Bono really, does that. He kind of, it's almost like he's scatting. He's like, da, 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 he just, and he waits till words come to him. Rod Stewart did that also, uh, does that also. He did that on Maggie May. That's how he came to the lyrics. He just sort of creates this demo, you know, as they're playing it down where he's just singing anything to sort of get a grip and start to uh, you know, start the imagination going. Um, so down in Antigua, not, not long after, in late 87, Steve transcribes the tape, right? Yeah, they're taping everything. And he sort of turns them into a story, he rearranges some things, and he puts them on a couple of pieces of paper, and he hands them to Keith down in Antigua. And Keith takes a pen, Keith's looking at it, scratches his head, uh, I guess they're in bathing suits, you know, those little short bathing suits, you know, and then flip-flops and wherever they are. Um, and, he, you know, Keith takes a pen and he cuts out every other line with the pen. And Steve was telling me that by doing that, it was amazing to watch because he could see on Keith's face that he could hear the music. He could hear the music and he was looking to see what sang well, what played well, and he realized that the song needed more air, that getting all those words in, you needed you needed less words, and you needed to be able to get the music through. It needed to bleed through, so he, he cut it back. Um, and th this, is, this was what was fascinating, too. Um, Keith told, I said to Keith, when you first started writing this song, I mean, who is it about? I mean, you, you, it's got to be about somebody. I mean, is it about the guy that delivers the mail? Is it about, you know, a girlfriend? I mean, what, what's going on? I mean, is, who, who, you know, something, you weren't happy about something. And, you know, he says, you know, he was probably thinking about Mick originally. And, you know, that's kind of interesting because if he was, as he says he was, then he's worried about his, you know, the, the group. He's worried like, 
you know, if you're in a band like that and everybody breaks up, you're basically spending the rest of your life going from band to band. He know he knew what lay ahead for him if the Stones broke up. They all did. And if that happened, he'd basically be going from band to band, you know, like Ronnie Wood or somebody else, where you're you're, you know, you're not what you had is gone and now you have to find a new home. Like Jeff Beck. Right. Like kind of like just like yeah. forever wandering the road. Correct. You know? yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, no, it's, it's just Jeff the way Beck it is. And Jeff Beck was cool with it, but that's right. not what Keith wanted. Right. Correct. And Keith likes that stability. He likes to be able to, you know, do his thing within that within that unit. Um, and he, the lyric line he had when he was writing it, the only one you shouldn't take it so hard, is about mixed touchiness. Now, this is what this isn't what this isn't what Keith said, but it's clearly that's what it is. That that you know, that mixed touchiness and, you know, not appreciating what we have is really what Keith's writing about here with that line. To me, I mean, that's not what Keith said, you know. He sort of was very abstract about the lyrics and doesn't really explain them and doesn't want to explain them beyond a point. But you get a sense that if that is what he said, that it's the touchiness, it's the don't be so sensitive, you know, this is a great situation, don't don't start messing it up. But in the studio, Steve told me he pushed Keith to get away from making the lyrics personally like don't make it about anybody let's just make it let's just make it generic let's make it an Everett song that anybody can get into and when I asked him why he said he didn't want the song to wallow in the gossip columns when this album came out because it would have you know oh, this song means this and these lyrics mean that and these guys are fighting he, they could sense that if they had done it that way they developed it that way they would break up you know it would be enough of an insult and a permanent insult not just a you know a, no guitar in the solo album but it would be sort of an endless album being played about their their anger and their bitterness and it's one of those things that it would be unforgiven i think um so they record the song at le studio in quebec uh, not in quebec city but in the province about an hour and a half outside of the city in the summer of 87 um, but as the band keeps playing it down the song isn't happening you know they're playing it over and over again in the studio and it's like it's just not it doesn't have the the jauntiness doesn't have that kick um and suddenly steve gets up from the drums not many people know this. I mean, they, I don't think they do. I mean, they know what happens, but they don't know why. Steve gets up and just asks for Charlie Drayton's bass. And Charlie just instinctively goes over to the drums and sits down at the drums. And I said, why did you do that? I said, we, I, I, said I went down, you know, we know that you do this because it's in the credits. You, you're not, you're on, it almost looks like a typo. You're on drums on the entire album, but on this, this song, you're on bass and Charlie's on drums. I mean, is that a, was that a mistake or, you know, why did you do it? He says... The groove, they, they couldn't get into the groove. The groove wasn't there. And since Steve had co-wrote it with Keith and had been playing it for so long, he knew where the groove was. And this is really interesting. What most people don't realize, in a group like this or any great group, the bass is driving everything in-house. In other words, it's the metronome in the kitchen. You know, people, no, most people can't hear the bass when they're listening to the song. It doesn't matter to them. I mean, it's there. You just can't hear it. But in a group, that's the TikTok. That's, everybody's listening to the bass. Everybody's hanging on the bass to find out what they have to do themselves. You know, how am I going to play the drums? How am I going to come in on guitar? It's the bass that's that's the conductor within the group. Um, and he said he... he you know, he knew the groove. As he said, the bass defines the song structure and gives everyone something to grab And they needed, he knew where the groove was. Steve knew where the groove was. And as soon as they switch, they record again and they get it in one take. 
Done. Finished. Everybody looks at each other. And as Keith says, everybody looked and it was like, congratulations on everybody's face in the studio. It's like, we got it. This is it. It Was there a sense of uh, if it had to be fresh? It's so interesting. Sometimes, I I don't know about you as a writer, you'll write the same lead over and over and over. And then sometimes you have to kind of like try a completely different lead that has nothing to do a lead of a story. It's almost like that. Like they had to like change up the air in the room to get it right. Yeah, I mean, that's a great way to put it. And it, they, they also had to get, without that groove, without that snap, the song felt, these guys knew that the song felt that it was missing vitamins, that it wasn't an A+, plus, that it was sort of like a B+. Plus. It was an album track versus like a yeah, pop single. It, they didn't like have what they had single. when Keith, when Studio 900. Keith and, Keith and um, Steve knew the formula for this song. And they, Steve realized playing the drums, he realized, let me get to the bass, let Charlie jump on the drums, and let's see if we can get this thing just right. Let's see if we can get that. And this is what this is what people at this high level, and multi-instrumentals, like yeah. the, the fact that you could play more than one thing, and that, that Charlie can play the drums. Like the, totally. you listen to the song, and those drums are so powerful. You think it's Steve. Yeah. You think it's Steve on the drums, right? <laughs> That's why you think it's almost a typo on that thing. Um, Keith, by the way, uses his uh, 51, um, 1951 Butterscotch Fender Blackguard Telecaster that Eric Clapton gave him in '71. He calls this car, this guitar, as most people probably know, the Macabre. This is Macabre. Macabre is a character, by the way, in Dickens' David Copperfield, who routinely says something will turn up, which is great. I mean, Keith calls it Macabre. Nobody ever sort of writes, defines what Macabre means or why, but the character keeps saying something will turn up, which is brilliant, right? Because Keith calls the guitar like something eventually will come up, right, in the guitar. Like if he doesn't know what he wants to play, something will come up. And which is why he calls it the macabre. It's, it's, it's deep. I mean, it's, that's, that's Keith. He's got a very interesting, well-read, deep side. On the song, Keith's biggest challenge was learning to step into the role as lead singer, as we talked about uh, earlier. Um, it's tough stuff for him, as we said. You know, uh, he stepped in for a couple of lyrics. If you watch the videos, and he steps out and mix driving this thing. So he had to figure out how to sing all the way through songs, which was tough. And he, you know, he said to me, he, he admired Keith a lot more as a front man. Um, and I think Mick admired Keith a lot more when he read the reviews of his own solo album. You know, <laughs> I think these guys, I think after this album, these guys come to realize why they exist together and why they, why, why they're, why they're doing so well. Um, Keith said he never played the song for Mick, never, you know, said, you got to hear this or, you know, but he knows that he loved the album. I think there was a point. Ooh. Yeah, there was a point. If you if you read Keith's uh, autobiography, there's a point where um, <clears throat> Keith goes to use the restroom. I think it's at his place or in the hotel. And he sort of looked back while the album was on and Mick was dancing to one of the songs. It may have been uh, Take It So Hard where... Mick was feeling out whether this was a stone, whether he could have done it, you know, whether, I mean, it was good enough that Mick was sort of, you know, bopping bop, around. prancing around in the living room, working through how he might have approached this thing. And you know, that's so funny that uh, Keith might not have played it for him because that's the kind of thing bands harbor. Like Banks and Rutherford to this day insist that Phil Collins never played them in the air tonight. And mm. Phil Collins is like, I played it to the band. They weren't interested. They're still rubbed the wrong way about that. Wow. But it's almost too like, you know, you're in a marriage and you cheat on somebody but and the person, the, the, the partner knows it, but you don't want to talk about it. 
You know, it's like, you, you know, I know you're doing that other record. Please don't come and bring it to me. But then, you know, you go on YouTube or you go on Facebook to see who they're actually dating. You know, he, he, Mick wanted to hear the music, but he was not going to say, hey, send me your, your solo album. Like, it's yeah. it, there's a sweetness yeah, to that. No. Again, marriage. Yeah, and it's also boundaries, right? You know, um, those solo things are separate. That's it's sort of like, um, you know, they're they're out. It's sort of they went they went out with the guys or somebody. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, like, it's like, but it's open marriage, right? It's like they were dating outside the union. And then they realize how I think they really do realize how um, how the results are so lackluster. And as you know, and I think why that becomes so painful, I would think, if I step into their shoes, is you come to realize your shortcomings. You know, if you if you're if you're Mick Jagger, I would think that when you hear back, you know, as much as you might like those solo albums or you did your best on them, you're you're not hearing Keith in your in your ear. You're not you're not hearing him in your ear's peripheral vision. And without that there, you're almost you're half you. And I think Keith has the same thing that without without Mick doing the front vocals, without him as a front man, it doesn't have the, the, the dirtiness and the nastiness and the edginess that matches his guitar. You know, the guitar is great, but without, without Mick's voice, they're, they're hand in hand. It's hand in glove. It's like whenever I see Mick play guitar, I'm like, Dude, you don't need to. I mean, you're, it's enough that you're Mick Jagger. You know, yeah. you really... Uh. Well, when Freddie Mercury did his solo albums, his big complaint was, you know what? I always wanted to do it my way, but doing it my way meant I lacked the tension that I had with you. Well put. You, the tension between us made me me. For sure. The best me. Uh, you know, that's that's it. Uh, it takes, it sometimes, the fortunate thing for us and for them is that these guys realized it at the precipice. You know, that they didn't, think about all the bands, you know, from the Beatles on, right? Where, I don't like you anymore, and you know, your wife's in my face, and I don't want this person in the studio, and I don't want to do this song this way, and that sounds stupid. You know, eventually it's like time to go off on their own. When they go off on their own, what they had is never recaptured again. They have yes men when they go off on their own, yeah. not tension. Right, right. And what, you know, what makes the Beatles and the Stones so great is that tension. It's the contrast and the friction between, you know, the guitar and Mick's voice and then everything else that builds around it uh, in, in uh, you know, with, a, with a, an enormous feel. And these guys, you know, it's what they do. But separately, uh, you know, not so much because there's vitamins missing again. Um, I, you know, and this is interesting because I asked Keith, I said, you know, take it so hard. It sounds perfect for Mick. You know, it really does. I mean, it, sound, you know, it sounds like if he had done the vocal on that thing, I mean, that would have been a great, that would have been the hit off of Dirty Work. Um, and he said, I said, well, you guys, when you're on tour, I mean, you ever think of bringing it forward, like having him rehearse that thing and doing it? And he said, right away, he said, um, Stones will never play Take It So Hard or any of the Wino songs. And this, is, this was what was really cool. He said, I'd never mix the two groups. Never mix them. He said, and, and, he started to sort of ruminate. I mean, he, he was like, he said, oh, no, no, no. I, I, I never mix the two groups. No, 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 no. I mean, he was sort of thinking it through and no, no, knowing it as if that would never happen. And he said, I wouldn't want to confuse the issue. And then he paused and said, the stones, all the stones. 
and to me that was like that's a thunderclap. A, that's a mic drop right there. That was a thunderclap. That he really recognizes was. Yeah, I mean the enormity of who they are. And also you well, don't bring sound. you don't bring your girlfriend to the party that your wife's at. Like that's well, also yeah, the other thing that I'm thinking. Don't bring you know? sand to the beach. Right. You know? All right, let's take a quick break. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say it's also the sound right that the, he he's sensitive to the fact that there's two different sounds and that the two sounds one it would never sound good it would never sound good over there and that would never sound good over there yeah but they do enough concerts that they could have a keith solo section while mick goes off and does something but it's interesting that they would not do that other bands do that yeah a lot it'd be crucial well that would yes. also but that would also open the door to a mick solo session and nobody wants that just another night <laughs> i mean honestly night. honestly, she, honestly she's every you. once in a while i will listen to not all of She's the boss, but oh, I mean, come I don't, on, Nick. No, I don't. I don't remember that <laughs> no album. No one does. That's not true. I don't remember that album as the disaster everybody said it was. It just wasn't Mick Jagger. It was just too smooth. Primitive, primitive cool. I thought was horrifically bad. Yeah, from yeah. the title. And God, God is in the doorway. There was one good song on it. The rest were just shite. Yeah, well, yeah, it's like, like he, I said, they they like realized he and Wyclef was just a bad marriage, man. They realized it was a bad scene, and fortunately, because then they came back together and they've been together ever since. All right, let's take a quick break. We got a little more to go from uh, Mark Myers. Always, always so edumacatish. Chanel. We'll be right back on feedback. You're listening to feedback. you inside the making of a hit this is anatomy of a song on feedback that really was a bad look again i mean i know you kind of slagged it i do love one hit to the body but that could have saved that album. <laughs> yeah, I agree. That, that rip alone could have saved oh, that man. album. Uh, it, totally, totally. <laughs> All right, Mark Myers is here. Anatomy of a song. That song, Take It So Hard. Keef. Let's do a top 10 as we always do at the end. Top 10 songs. But this time, let's do um, let's do 10 songs with the word. Again, we were covering Take It So Hard today. Let's do 10 songs with the word hard in it. And they're... Many of them are just fabulous, and you, like I think we did when "What a Fool Believes." We did uh, ten songs with the word "fool," you know, about fools, and they're all they were all like hits. Every single, every, you know, if you put "fool" in a song, you're going to have a hit with it, no matter what. If Chicago hard habit to break is not on this list, it is completely specious. I don't know. I don't know. Let's go back. Let's start. Um, let's uh, let's let's. We, we actually are going to go back. Uh, we, let's go back to 1931. Jeez. This is Skip James. Well, you know, it's Keith, and we got to get some blues in. Um, hi, Keith. Skip James, Hard Time Killing Floor Blues, 1931. Everywhere you go. I mean, this is like Keith's breakfast cereal. This is, this is what this guy lives on to get to where he is. I mean, kind of sounds is, like Sun House in the vocal, yeah? Yeah. Skip James. Uh, Give me Vera Hall's Trouble So Hard. Trouble So Hard. Take It So Hard. Trouble So Hard. 1937, Vera Hall. That's a cappella, by the way. Singing on her own. No instruments. Don't nobody know my trouble was gone. 
Went down All right, the let's, uh, let's do a guy named Sun Bonds. This is a hard pill to swallow, 1941. We can do a whole show on this thing, you know. This is this is great stuff. Um, this this is for Keith and Steve. Let's let's do Charles Brown's Hard Times, 1951. Man, that's that's not working on the railroad. I don't know what is. I've got pains in my head. Charles Brown. Can I just tell you, my father was the most conservative guy ever, and I'd never seen him really, like, unless he was angry, raise his voice. I took him to see Charles Brown, and he was like, yes, sing it! I was like, who are you? Who are you? (laughs) You're a good son. (laughs) Um, Big Walter Horton. Uh, Again, Big Walter Horton. This is Hard-Headed Woman in 1954. What atmosphere in this thing, right? You just a hard-hearted woman Instead of evil all the time Now again, this is the music, Keith and Mick. I mean, this is what these guys are listening to in, in London uh, during the uh, late 50s and very early 60s. You have to remember the radio over there did not play rock and roll. Didn't play rock and roll until, until the 1970s. So you've got the pirate ship. You know, some people can get that off the coast of England. And you've got Radio Luxembourg that they can listen to if they've got a radio late at night. But for the most part, the radio isn't counting down anything. These guys are, you know, you can go to, the only way you can listen to this stuff is if you go to the record store and buy it. Um, and these guys are all collecting blues records. I mean, they're living and breathing. They're studying the blues all through this period. Um, let's do, uh, let's, we're moving now into the 60s. Um, let's, uh, let's do Neil. Let's do Neil. Yeah, breaking up is hard to do. Hard again. Uh, let's do Bob on the back of that, which will be an interesting contrast. <laughs> A hard rain is going to fall. 62 also. Oh, where have you been, my blue-eyed son? And where have you been, my darling young one? So again, all of these songs have the word hard in it. Because we're doing Take It So Hard today, so we... I went back in time and pulled that out. Let's do the boys next uh, from 1964. Again, all of these are influences. They're all influences. Um, let's do the song from Hair, 1969. 
I mean, a weird group, but I love them anyway. Three Dog Night. This song had a great arrangement, no matter what you think of them. I like the Three Dog Night. Yeah, Second so time I. this week they've been mentioned. We don't yeah. mention them for yeah, weeks at a time. It's yeah, time they, should be, they should be doing the beacon. They should be at the beacon. Um, let's do The Who from 1982. such a great song isn't it wow man it's amazing to hear adultery when he was young yeah <laughs> and now run a little bit of take it so hard so we can hear you know how keith uh, keith and steve fit into this we'll take this out so we bring it all full circle baby all right, Mark Myers, as always, thank Great you. Great seeing you guys. Check out the uh, the article on our socials at SiriusXM Volume. Larry Flick, new music tomorrow. Peace. Bye.